Welcome to the November Dermalogic Surgery Journal podcast. I am the podcast editor, Naomi Lawrence. This month, we introduce additional content in Beyond the Digest, which covers surgical articles in the Dermalogic Surgery literature outside of Dermalogic Surgery Journal and immediately follows our Derm Surgery Digest. With this additional content, we can provide the listener easy access to all the latest dermatologic surgery topics. In this month's journal, there is a single institution retrospective review of Mohs surgery performed in the proximity of the temporal nerve, which identifies tumor size as the greatest risk factor for nerve damage. There is a nice literature review on tobacco, nicotine, nicotine replacement, and electronic nicotine delivery systems and their effect on results in dermatologic reconstruction surgery. Finally, there are two important communications on high-risk SCC, one advocating the use of pancytokeratin immunostaining for tumors with complicated histology, and the other advising clear synoptic reporting of high-risk SCC features when charting. Thank you for listening and have a happy surgery day. This segment of the episode features surgical oncology and reconstructive article reviews. This is Michael Renzi reviewing the original investigation view Pivocaine to reduce pain and narcotic use after Mohs micrographic surgery by first author Vanessa Voss and senior author Nicholas Golda. Pain after Mohs surgery peaks on the day of surgery and slowly decreases thereafter. Common postoperative analgesics include acetaminophen, ibuprofen, and narcotics. Bupivacaine has been shown to reduce intraoperative pain during Mohs surgery and, but has not been studied in the postoperative setting. Therefore, the authors of this article performed a multi-site, single-blinded, prospective, randomized controlled trial comparing postoperative wound infiltration of bupivacaine versus normal saline or placebo in Mohs surgery patients undergoing reconstructions expected to produce higher levels of pain as defined by the 2020 American Academy of Dermatology Opioid Prescribing Guidelines. The primary outcome was the use of narcotic medication in the first 24 hours after surgery. Secondary outcomes included the use of non-narcotic and narcotic pain medication in the first 48 hours after surgery, patient reported pain levels, and overall pain control. So immediately after reconstruction, identically dose 0.5% bupivacaine without epinephrine or sterile normal saline with preservative was injected evenly at a one centimeter grid around the flap. Injection volume was standardized and based on flap surface area. All patients received at least 2.5 cc's of solution and up to five cc's based on the reconstruction area. All patients received standardized post-operative pain management instructions. Patients were advised to use alternating acetaminophen 1000 milligrams and ibuprofen 400 milligrams and ice then add tramadol only as needed for breakthrough pain. Patients were given a pain diary to record pain medication use, post-operative pain levels using a visual analog scale of zero to 10, and overall assessment of pain control in eight hour intervals post-MOS for a total of 48 hours. 
A total of 174 patients were enrolled in the study, 79 in the bupivacaine group and 87 in the placebo group. 11 patients in the bupivacaine group and 15 in the placebo group did not fully complete their pain diaries, though this difference was not statistically significant. The use of narcotic analgesics was statistically significantly higher in the placebo group than the bupivacaine group in the first 24 hours and 48 hours combined. Average pain scores were lower in the bupivacaine group during the first eight-hour interval and then were similar between groups for the remaining post-operative period. Overall use of pain medication combining both narcotics and narcotics, non-narcotics, during the 48-hour post-operative period was not significantly different between groups. The percentage of patients reporting that pain was under control at each eight-hour interval was also similar between groups. Overall, I think this is good information for, for established patients who may poorly tolerate post-operative pain in the first 24 hours. Even after large flaps, though, my patients often have sufficient analgesia with acetaminophen and ibuprofen, so I don't see this becoming a regular part of my post-operative protocol. Additionally, the availability of bupivacaine is currently limited. This is Erica Levitt reviewing the original article, Damage to the Temporal Branch of the Facial Nerve for Mohs Micrographic Surgery by authors Eileen Oxabal and Mariah Brown, as well as the commentary by Stanislav Tolkachev. A known risk of surgery in the temporal region is damage to the temporal branch of the facial nerve, which runs superficially in this danger zone area. The most significant resulting defects relate to paralysis of the frontalis muscle with forehead flattening and brow ptosis. This paper was a single institution retrospective review of Mohs cases within the temporal nerve danger zone to assess risk factors associated with nerve damage. 616 Mohs cases in the danger zone from 2010 to 2018 at the author's institution were included in the analysis. 28 or 4.5% of these cases had evidence of temporal nerve damage from the procedure. 82% of these had complete nerve paralysis. Four of the five patients with only partial paralysis resolved spontaneously. Several factors were found to be significantly associated with temporal nerve damage. These included patient immunosuppression, aggressive tumor histology, recurrent tumor status, and perineural invasion. Tumors with temporal nerve damage after surgery also were larger, had more subclinical spread as measured by the difference between initial and final defect size, and had a greater average number of Mohs stages. Tumor size, both preoperatively and postoperatively, was the factor most strongly associated with nerve damage. There were no cases of nerve damage in cases with post-op defect size less than 2 centimeters and 70% of the cases with nerve damage had postoperative defects greater than 4 centimeters. A pre-op and post-op tumor size of greater or equal to 3 centimeters conferred 37 times and 40 times respectively increased odds of temporal nerve damage. This overall was a very well-designed paper that showed that overall the risk of temporal nerve damage is less than 5% even in a study population at an academic referral center with many large and complex tumors. There are identifiable risk factors for nerve damage that can be used in patient counseling. The commentary by Stanislav Tolkachev adds that surgeons may have more suspicion for nerve damage for tumors that are poorly defined and sclerotic and bound down, 
or rapidly growing or with clinical inflammation around the tumor. These factors may be more difficult to quantify in a study such as this one. He notes that it is very important to counsel patients who are at risk for damage, as some patients may actually choose less curative measures to avoid the risk of nerve damage. He also counsels patients on possible treatment options for nerve damage if it were to occur, which include static brow lifts or nerve repair techniques such as nerve grafting, nerve transfer, or direct end-to-end nerve repair, the latter of which should be done within 72 hours. This is Ashley Decker reviewing the original investigation, sebaceous carcinoma of the face treated with Mohs micrographic surgery by first author Dr. Mir and senior author Dr. Briseno. Sebaceous carcinoma is a rare malignant tumor frequently found on the head and neck and can be associated with Torre. Compared with other locations, periorbital sebaceous carcinoma is at a higher risk for regional metastasis and extension into the orbit. Surgical extirpation is the treatment of choice, and this can be accomplished by either Mohs or wide local excision. This study sought to assess the rates of local recurrence and metastasis after Mohs for facial sebaceous carcinomas and to describe coordinated care with oculoplastics. Patients with a biopsy-proven sebaceous carcinoma treated with Mohs from 2005 to 2020 were identified from a prospectively updated Mohs database. A total of 53 patients were identified as having undergone Mohs for a sebaceous carcinoma of the periorbital area, with four patients being excluded due to the presence of local or regional spread, leaving 49 patients total in the cohort. The average follow-up time was 55 months. Two-thirds of the cases were cleared in one stage. None of the patients had local or regional recurrence. One patient ended up having metastatic disease. He had Torre and his sebaceous carcinoma invaded into the supratrochlear nerve and tracked back into the orbit. The patient declined exoneration but did undergo radiation. All of the 49 patients in this study underwent recon with oculoplastics, with the majority of patients undergoing a direct closure or local tissue flap. Previous studies have demonstrated Mohs to be non-inferior to wide local excision for treatment of sebaceous carcinoma, and this study adds to the body of literature supporting use of Mohs for sebaceous carcinoma. The 0% local regional recurrence rate found in the study is lower than in previous literature. The authors do point out that their situation is unique in that a multidisciplinary approach between Mohs and oculoplastics was utilized in all of the cases in the study. They discuss that additional excision and debridement during the two-step Mohs followed by oculoplastics reconstruction may allow for more complete removal of atypical cells leading to a lower recurrence rate. In addition, reconstruction with oculoplastics allows the Mohs surgeon to remove whatever tissue is necessary to clear the tumor. Overall, as I mentioned before, the study does add to the body of literature supporting the use of Mohs for removal of periorbital sebaceous carcinoma. Depending on the surgeon's comfort level with periorbital reconstruction, coordination with oculoplastics can be useful in some situations, but I favor that complete margin evaluation is the reason for the lower occurrence rate over coordinated reconstruction with oculoplastics. This is Deirdre Connolly reviewing the original investigation, patient education on scarring following Mohs micrographic surgery, patient preference for information delivery. First author, Abdella Alessia, senior author, Erica Lee. There are different modalities for patient education ranging from written to audiovisual formats. 
the authors aim to assess patient preference for educational materials about scar care following surgery for facial skin cancer using the FACE-Q skin cancer patient reported outcome measure. In terms of study design, on the day of Mo's surgery, patients were given a written handout or viewed a three-minute animation video regarding best practices and scar improvement. The handout and video included the following information, natural history of scar development and maturation, techniques to improve scars such as massage, application of sunscreen, silicone products, or other topical creams on the scar. Afterwards, patient received the FACE-Q skin cancer satisfaction with information appearance scale. The FACE-Q skin cancer module is a patient-reported outcome measure that assesses outcomes related to satisfaction and quality of life for facial skin cancer surgery patients. Three months later, patients were called and given the same scale and additional questions regarding scar care. A total of 75 patients were enrolled, and there was no difference between the two groups' preoperative information scores and the three-month postoperative scores. The change in preoperative and postoperative scores showed no significant difference between the two groups, but there was a trend towards higher satisfaction in the video group on the day of most surgery. After the three-month time point, there was a higher satisfaction trend observed with the written handout group, which authors surmise may be due to the accessibility of the written handout at home postoperatively, as the patients did not have video access after the first day of Mohs. Interestingly, a subset of patients had no recollection of the handout or video session, corroborating former studies that have shown that only about 50% of information relayed to patients is retained. This is Christy Regula, reviewing basal cell carcinoma with perineural invasion. A systematic review and pooled survival analysis by first author Yasmin Abushkar and senior author Thomas Naxted. Perineural invasion is considered a high-risk histopathologic feature in many skin cancers. While perineural invasion is a well-known poor prognostic factor of squamous cell carcinoma, it is poorly understood in the context of basal cell carcinoma. This review analyzes demographic, clinical, and treatment data for basal cell cancer with perineural invasion to determine the effect of these variables on recurrence patterns, disease progression, and cancer-specific mortality. A comprehensive literature search was performed with the inclusion criteria of case reports or case series with confirmed basal cell carcinoma complicated with perineural invasion and sufficient patient, patient details. A total of 49 articles with 159 cases of basal cell carcinoma with perineural invasion met criteria to be included in the analysis. Most tumors were treated with surgery or Mohs surgery, and of the 45 cases that reported surgical margin status, 86.7% reported negative surgical margins. Positive surgical margins were more frequent in patients with a poor outcome. Of the 159 cases, the overall five-year survival was 90.9%, and the cancer-specific mortality was 8.5%, further emphasizing the importance of obtaining negative margins. Patient and tumor characteristics were evaluated to determine significant risk factors for a poor outcome, with a poor outcome defined as disease recurrence, metastasis, or cancer-specific mortality. The analyzed factors included gender, perineural invasion level, perineural invasion clinical symptoms, nerve diameter, 
multifocal nerve involvement, negative surgical margins, presence of a named nerve, tumor treatment, and perineural invasion detection on imaging. Of these, those that were found to be statistically significant were male gender, multifocal nerve involvement, presence of clinical symptoms, and perineural invasion detected on imaging. This is Michael Renzi reviewing the original investigation, perioperative bleeding associated with a brutinib in dermatologic surgery, a case control study by first author Nessa Agazeda and senior author Nahid Vidal. A brutinib is an oral brutin tyrosine kinase inhibitor that has been associated with an increased risk of bleeding events in the non-operative setting. The risk of bleeding complications with a brutinib after dermatologic surgery is largely unknown beyond case reports, so the authors performed a retrospective single-center case control study of patients on a brutinib undergoing skin surgery to determine the frequency of bleeding complications. Current procedural terminology codes for Mohs micrographic surgery and excisions for benign and malignant neoplasms of all anatomic sites were used as initial search criteria to identify all patients undergoing major cutaneous surgeries in the Department of Dermatology between January 2013 and March 2020. A severity scale of complications as reported in prior cutaneous surgery studies was used to categorize bleeding complications. This scale classifies bleeding complications as mild, moderate, or severe. A severe complication was defined as potentially significantly threatening to the wound or patient, meaning considerable intraoperative or postoperative hemorrhage, wound bleeding for more than one hour not stopped with pressure, acute hematoma, flap or graft necrosis, or dehiscence greater than 2 millimeters. The case group included a total of 75 surgeries performed on 37 CLL patients on a brutinib and was inclusive of patients who had drug withheld or continued. The control group included 116 surgeries performed on 64 CLL patients. There was no statistically significant difference between the groups regarding anatomic site, tumor diagnosis, lesion size, type of surgery, or surgical repair method. Overall, a brutinib use was associated with an 8% rate of bleeding events. This included six bleeding complications in 75 procedures compared with only one event observed in 116 control surgeries, and this difference was statistically significant. Among these six bleeding events in a brutinib case patients, two were severe, including one intensive care unit admission, and four were mild. Of note, within the case group, five of six patients who suffered bleeding on a brutinib took aspirin or other anticoagulants. Platelet counts were also significantly lower in patients with bleeding, with a mean count of 104 versus 150.5. Overall, there were too many confounding variables in this study to assess the true association between bleeding complications and a brutinib. In the discussion, the authors state that withholding a brutinib is neither risk nor symptom-free, and about one quarter, of C- one quarter of CLL patients with temporary holding of a brutinib experience a disease flare. Two severe bleeding events occurred over 75 surgeries, but we are not told which criteria the events met to be classified as severe, and the criteria were rather broad. Therefore, the only recommendation that can truly be drawn from this paper is that withholding a brutinib perioperatively should be on a case-by-case basis. This is Deirdre Connolly reviewing the original article, Is There a Smoking Gun for Nicotine? Update on the Role of Nicotine in Dermatologic Surgery. 
First author Mauricio Jin, senior author Ali Kansamani. There is abundant evidence that shows smoking is associated with an increased infection rate, poor wound healing, and overall wound complications. Dermatologic surgeons are faced with a dilemma when counseling actively smoking patients who require surgery. Recommend total cessation of all nicotine that is associated with an extremely high rate of failure or recommend nicotine replacement therapy. Authors aim to determine the safety of nicotine replacement therapy in dermatologic surgery. They queried PubMed using the terms nicotine or electronic cigarettes and flap or wound healing. A total of 74 articles were included in the study. Studies offered evidence that smoking tobacco is detrimental to wound healing, supported by ample evidence. Perioperative smoking cessation reduces this risk, with studies suggesting the benefit of cessation may only be observed when abstinence is achieved for three to four weeks. Basic science demonstrates both a benefit and detriment of nicotine, depending on the factor studied. It is pro-angiogenic and promotes cell migration, However, it causes vasoconstriction and decreases growth factors. Human studies suggest no detrimental effect of nicotine on perioperative complications. Nicotine may be detrimental to flaps, but evidence is limited to basic science. However, there is one reported instance of flap necrosis in humans that is attributed to e-cigarette use. Authors conclude that dermatologists should consider recommending nicotine replacement for smokers in the perioperative period. Evidence is lacking to determine safety in flaps. It is presumed based on animal studies that nicotine has a negative effect on flaps. However, it is likely less than tobacco. Weighing the risk of secession failure without nicotine replacement versus nicotine replacement after flap is challenging. Electronic cigarettes should be considered a separate category as studies have shown comparable complication rates to active smoking and e-cigarettes should be discouraged as a mean of nicotine replacement therapy. Authors Jason Klein and Rajiv Najawan offer a commentary on this study. They agree that there is no consensus on the impact of nicotine replacement therapy in dermatologic surgery. They cite an interesting study, particularly relevant by Sorensen and colleagues, who examined four millimeter punch biopsy wounds in both non-smoking and smoking volunteers. They excised the wounds and found that smokers had an increased infection rate, 12 versus 2%, decreased macrophages and fibroblasts, enhanced wound contraction, and decreased collagen metabolism. In this study, they also compared patients who used a placebo patch versus those who used a nicotine patch, who experienced no difference in infection rate, inflammation, neovascularization, wound contraction, or collagen metabolism. Based on the available data, the authors feel that the benefits of nicotine replacement therapy for smoking cessation outweigh any potential risks in dermatologic surgery and agree with the authors that dermatologic surgeons should counsel their patients on it. They mentioned the difficulty that some clinics may have in implementing a smoking cessation discussion given the fact that same-day surgery is offered at many institutions. One proposed approach is for schedulers or medical staff to ask about smoking history at the time of scheduling so that patient can have an appropriate discussion on smoking cessation before surgery.
This is Michael Renzi reviewing the reconstructive conundrum repair of a defect involving the inferior nasal tip and soft triangle by first author Emily Powell and senior author Sebastian Winokor. The authors describe the repair of a full thickness defect measuring 2 by 1 centimeter involving the left inferior nasal tip and soft triangle extending into the lateral alar cartilage and nostril following Mohs for a basal cell carcinoma in a 90-year-old male patient. Reconstruction of full thickness defects of the nasal tip and soft triangle can be challenging as the inflexible and sebaceous distal nose makes recruitment of surrounding tissue difficult. Additionally, it is critical to avoid distortion of the free margin where even small deviations in soft triangle alignment can lead to marked asymmetry. To repair this defect, the authors performed a V to Y flap, which they advanced over the lateral cartilage, recreating the nasal alar rim. Care was taken to ensure that the subcutaneous pedicle was maintained. The cross-sectional area of the pedicle was approximately 40% of the surface area of the flap. The outcome at seven weeks postoperatively can be seen in figure three of the article. I would have liked a little bit more detail in the technique portion of this article. I assumed that the distal portion of the flap was folded on itself, and that's why a turn down flap and cartilage strut were not required given the nature of this defect. This is Erica Levitt reviewing the reconstructive conundrum, reconstruction of a large multi-subunit defect of the nasal sidewall and medial campus by authors Shoshana Blumenthal and Ian Marr. The case was a 6.5 by 3.8 centimeter defect involving the nasal sidewall, nasal root, dorsum, glabella, upper and lower eyelids, and medial cheek. The authors considered various combinations of flaps and grafts, but opted for a mustardi rotation flap for the cheek and lower eyelid components, a two-staged forehead flap for the nasal and glabellar portion, and a burrows full thickness skin graft from the cheek standing cone for the small upper eyelid component. I refer listeners to the images in the article for a visualization of this excellent repair. The main takeaway is that complex defects involving multiple cosmetic subunits often require a combination approach with several of the subunits being repaired separately to maximize functional and cosmetic outcomes. This is Ashley Decker and I'm reviewing the reconstructive conundrum, reconstruction of a full thickness multi-subunit nasal defect by first author Dr. Lee and senior author Dr. Jang. In this article, the authors present a case of a 70-year-old male with a 1 by 0.8 centimeter basal on the right nasal ala cleared in two Mohs stages. The final defect was 1 by 1.5 centimeters with full thickness tissue loss of the right nasal tip, soft triangle, and alar rim. Full thickness defects involving multiple subunits are challenging because a multi-layered approach must be taken to ensure a cosmetically acceptable outcome. The various components to consider in this defect are the structural framework of the nasal rim, maintaining the tip projection, the internal mucosal lining, and overlying skin. The first consideration is how to repair the nasal mucosal lining and local flaps such as a bilobed or trilobed will not allow for enough tissue reservoir to fold over the flap to replace the mucosal lining. Composite grafts can be considered but have a high metabolic de demand with significant risk of necrosis. A septal mucoperichondrial flap or bipedical mucosal flap can be used to replace the mucosal lining, but these can be difficult to perform due to lack of visualization and issues with hemostasis. 
Ultimately, the authors opted for a two-stage turnover mulolabial interpolated flap with a cartilage strut. The flap was designed with special consideration of the height of the missing internal and external structures, as well as the estimated width of the foldover portion. As opposed to the traditional foldover flap, where the tip of the flap is folded inward and then sutured into the nasal vestibule, here the distal flap was sutured first to the internal lining and folded outward, which allowed for complete visualization while suturing the flap to the nasal lining. In addition, the cartilage graft was inserted within the fold as part of the two-stage repair. For a complete description of the surgical procedure, I invite the listeners to read the articles or read the article as the authors have a very detailed stepwise description of the procedure. Personally, I've had good experience with the fold-over mulolabial interpolated flaps, but have always done it the traditional way where the tip of the flap is folded inward. I am interested to try the author's technique next time I have an appropriate defect. This is Deirdre Connolly reviewing the communication repair of adjacent defects on the lateral superbrow and temple. First author, Emily Dando, senior author, Mary Catherine Collins. The case involved a 58-year-old woman who presented with two nodular basal cell carcinomas on the left lateral superbrow and left temple. The final left lateral superbrow defect measured 1.1 by 0.7 centimeters and the left temple defect measured 1.1 by 1.0 centimeters. Authors opted to repair both defects with a single flap. They ultimately chose a U-plasty unilateral advancement flap. Figure 2 shows a nice schematic of the flap design. The location of the temple defect allowed for its placement in one of the flap's burrows triangles, and the other burrows triangle was taken inferiorly within an eyelid crease. The flap was then advanced medially to cover both defects. The repair is advantageous for the super bow as one incision line may be hidden just above the brow line and the other may be placed in a horizontal forehead crease. This is Christy Regula reviewing the reconstructive conundrum, challenging repair of a helical rim defect by first author Roseanne Ottavanger and senior author Roel Genders. This case describes a 71-year-old man who underwent most surgery for an infiltrative basal cell carcinoma on the mid-helical rim. The final defect size was 2.2 by 1.2 centimeters, with the majority of the defect extending onto the antihelix and some cartilage being removed. Some considerations for repair included a wedge resection, helical rim advancement flap, a two-stage interpolated postericular flap, and a full-thickness skin graft. The authors chose a partial pedicled wedge excision of the dorsal side and rotated the pedicle into the defect. First, a flap was designed using the remaining part of the posterior helix where the cartilage was missing. This flap was pedicled off of the musculus auricularis posterior. The secondary defect on the posterior ear was then closed primarily. The posterior side of the flap was rolled over the pedicle to cover the anterior part of the defect and to recreate a portion of the helical rim. The reconstruction allowed for maintaining the helical rim as well as maintaining the overall length of the ear and resulted in a good cosmetic outcome at three months. Please see the article for a detailed description of the repair and photos. This is Michael Renzi reviewing Reconstructive Conundrum Repair of a Large Scrotal Skin Defect by first author Fu Nian She and senior author Takwa Wong. In this article, the authors describe the reconstruction of an 8 by 6 centimeter defect on the left scrotum and penile shaft following wide, exi- 
wide excision for extra mammary Paget's disease. Latissimus dorsi, perforator flaps, anterolateral thigh perforator flaps, low abdominal rotary flaps, and split thickness skin grafts have been used to reconstruct large penoscrotal defects in the past. The authors of this article reconstructed the defect by tunneling the penile shaft through the patient's own scrotal skin. This was performed by making an incision at the center of the inferior residual scrotal skin. The hole was then enlarged to an adequate size by extension force of the fingers. The penis was then tunneled through the skin in a physiologic position, which can be seen in figure two, and the skin was then closed with nylon sutures. A drain was inserted in the lower scrotum and a Foley catheter was inserted for one day to prevent urinary retention. The final outcome at 12 months can be seen in figure four of the article. This is Erica Levitt reviewing the communication pancytokeratin immunohistochemistry from high-risk cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma in conjunction with Mohs micrographic surgery by authors Kevin Kwan and Adam Sutton. This study describes the experience at the author's institution using the pancytokeratin immunostain during Mohs for high-risk SECs. The authors used the pan-CK stain for SECs that are poorly differentiated or acantholytic or spindled pathologic subtypes, have perineural inflammation or invasion, dense inflammation, or tumors with deep invasion. A rapid immunostain protocol for PAN-CK is used at their center that includes antibodies to AE1, E3, CK5, CK8, and CK18. This stain was chosen because it includes some cytokeratin such as CK5 and CK8 that can highlight poorly differentiated SECs that may have lost AE1, AE3 staining. The pan-CK stains do highlight normal structures, so if there's still diagnostic uncertainty, the authors send the case for permanent processing with additional stains. Figure one of their paper is a detailed diagram demonstrating the group's lab protocol for pan-CK frozen section immunostaining with some pearls and pitfalls, which is a great resource for anyone interested in starting this stain in their practice. Overall, the use of pan-CK staining has the promise to help identify residual tumor that might be missed on h &E alone for some of the toughest high-risk SEC cases. And I really look forward to the growing research on outcomes data confirming positive impacts on patient outcomes and recurrence rate. This is Christy Regula, reviewing the communication, how we do it. Synaptic reporting for cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma during Mohs micrographic surgery by first author, Megan O'Connor, and senior author, David Carr. We know that a subset of cutaneous squamous cell carcinomas have an increased risk of poor outcomes, and that there are certain high-risk features that are associated with poorer outcomes. The two most common staging systems for cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma are the AJCC8 and Brigham and Women's Hospital staging systems. However, a recent survey revealed that certain high-risk features are recorded inconsistently by most surgeons. The authors present a synaptic report for cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma that they include in their Mohs operative note. They propose that this report may be completed for all cutaneous squamous cell carcinomas or only tumors with one high-risk feature for improved efficiency. It's important to note that some of the included features are best seen on debulking specimens. The synaptic report includes the following features. Tumor diameter, which is the clinical diameter before treatment, tumor differentiation, anatomic depth, measured depth, perineural inflammation, perineural invasion, 
clinical nerve involvement, bone erosion, skull base invasion, lymphatic invasion, vascular invasion, clinical pain, and immunosuppression. The AJCC8 and Brima Women's stage are then listed at the top of the report. This report is a straightforward way to better standardize the reporting of risk factors that are seen during most surgery that can predict a poorer outcome. This is Erica Levitt reviewing the communication, the use of freezer paper for thin, fragile specimens in Mohs surgery by authors Ashley McGinnis and Marta Van Beek. Thin, fragile Mohs specimens have the risk of tearing or distorting during processing. The authors recommend placing thin specimens on freezer paper instead of filter paper or gauze. The lesion should be placed on the glossy, coated side of the freezer paper and inked. The frozen cryodisc is then pressed onto the specimen on the freezer paper, and once frozen, the freezer paper is peeled away, leaving the original specimen shape and orientation. This is a useful pearl that can be used for some of those tough, thin Mohs levels. This is for C. Regola reviewing the effect of limited English proficiency on melanoma diagnosis. A retrospective cross-sectional study by first author Devin Barzalo and senior author Brian Carroll. Patients with limited English proficiency are associated with worse clinical outcomes compared with English-speaking patients. This communication looks at the healthcare outcomes in colon cancer and melanoma, comparing the outcomes between a condition for which preventative screenings are recommended and melanoma for which they are not. The National Health and Nutrition Examination Surveys database was used to determine the mean age of diagnosis for each condition. Mean age of diagnosis of non-limited English proficiency adult melanoma patients was lower at 51.9 years compared with limited English proficiency melanoma patients at 63.4 years, a difference of about 11 years. Mean age of diagnosis of non-limited English proficiency adult colon cancer patients was lower at 58.2 compared with limited English proficiency colon cancer patients at 68.2. While this study shows a later age at diagnosis for limited English proficiency patients, further studies are needed to clarify the impact of limited English proficiency on diagnosis, treatment, and outcomes. This segment of the episode features general dermatologic surgery and cosmetic article reviews. This is Monica Bowen and I'll be reviewing intralesional versus intramuscular hepatitis B virus vaccine in the treatment of multiple common warts by first author Ahmed Nofal and last author Basma Elkoli. As a refresher, HBV vaccine is a non-live DNA vaccine. So this vaccine can treat, have antiviral effects possibly on HPV due to humoral and cellular immune responses that activate the TH1 and TH2 cytokine pathway that then activate IL-2 and interferon gamma. The authors investigated the efficacy of intralesional versus intramuscular hepatitis B vaccine for common warts. They had previously only investigated intralesional HBV, but had limited success with only a 20% efficacy for common warts. This study was performed in Egypt, and there were 60 patients in this study. The inclusion criteria were 
greater than three warts. And half of the patients in this cohort, so 30, were injected with 0.2 cc's of the HV vaccine and only one of the largest warts every two weeks for a maximum of five treatments. The second 30 patient group received IM injections as a three-dose series of HPV vaccine regardless of previous vaccination history. Follow-up time was six months. So results of the study showed that the intralesional hepatitis B vaccine group had a complete response in 23% of patients while the intramuscular injection of the HPV had vaccine had complete response in 50%, no adverse events. So it turns out the intramuscular HPV vaccine had a much higher clearance of 50% than intralesional hepatitis B vaccine. It turns out the history of previous immunization with hepatitis B had no effect on therapeutic outman for the clearance of the warts. The exact mechanism of action for hepatitis B vaccine for the treatments of warts is unknown. This is a very small study and thus further clinical trials are needed to further evaluate where this could be a possible treatment modality for warts. This is Monica Bowen and I'll be reviewing assessing adult facial deformity patients for injectable treatment the current classification system and methodologies meet important patient needs by Joe Pilchantre and Timothy Ryder. So facial deformity is defined as a permanent structural deviation from the normal size or shape resulting in disfigurement. The authors noted that there's a lack of standardization in the methods used to assess and treat adult patients with facial deformity who wish to receive minimally invasive aesthetic treatments. The objectives for this paper were to identify classification systems for adult facial deformity and developing a treatment strategy. The authors did a PubMed search on this topic and found 42 relevant publications. The authors developed a checklist of items for this system, such as relating to anatomical coverage, deformity coverage, and user friendliness of 10 items. Of the 42 identified classification systems, found in the PubMed search, they met a mean of 3.7 of the 10 checklist items. However, there were four papers that received the highest scores um, and some are included in the results here. Um, however, none were usable across multiple types of deformity or provided a recommendation for the treatment of injectables. You can note there are a few figures of uh, impressive before and after photos of correction with hyaluronic acid fillers for various facial deformities. One was mandibular retrognathism and the other was facial trauma available in the journal. So there are no published systems that met complete set of requirements for classifying deformities, assessing their severity, and developing treatment strategies with injectables, and more is needed in this vulnerable patient demographic. This is Deirdre Hooper reviewing high patient satisfaction for up to six months with onabotulinum toxin A treatment for upper facial lines by first author Joel Cohen and lead author Sarah Sanga. And this paper was funded by Allergan. And it poses the question, do we see clinically significant results six months after one treatment? Botox or onabotulinum toxin type A. So they pooled data from four studies. It's a complex methodology that's well written up in the paper and I'll refer you to, but it's two studies looking at four headlines with glabella for six months, a crow's feet line for four months, and a crow's feet plus
Labeller lines for five months, and they looked at two things. They looked at how many people had a clinically meaningful response, which was defined as a one grade or better improvement in maximum contraction severity. And then they looked at how satisfied people were based on an assortment of psychological response questions. When you look at the results, forehead and glabella were similar, so I'll tell you those together. At day 30, 98% of people were responders. At day 120, 65% of people. At day 150, 42% of people were responders. And through day 180, or six months, 23% of people were responders. When they looked at psychological analysis from that day 180 data, more than 81% of responders said they were mostly or very satisfied. Crow's feet was a bit lower. At day 30, 82% of people were responders. And as I said, one of these studies went to five months, one went to four. The one that went to five months, there were 32% responders at five months. And when they looked at these people's psychological response, at the end of the study, it was more like 30% of people satisfied or very satisfied at the end of the study. So in the discussion, they just point out that there was a high patient satisfaction after a one-time improvement that persisted often really longer than the clinical improvement. They point out a limitation, which is important, that this was all treatment-naive patients. So it's hard to say what would happen clinically or psychologically if you inject someone who's been injected before and check on their psychological outcomes. They did not have six-month data in all four of these studies, only two of them, and they didn't all use the same satisfaction questionnaires. They point out the simultaneous treatment of all three areas, which wasn't looked at in the study, is likely associated with an even higher level of patient satisfaction and that the only FDA-approved product for all three areas is onobotulinum toxin type. So in conclusion, they conclude that this pooled analysis demonstrates that a clinical improvement is clinically meaningful at six months because it is associated with improved psychological impact and high patient satisfaction. This is Deirdre Hooper reviewing liquid abobotulinum toxin A. Pooled data from two double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled phase three studies of glabellar line treatment by first author Saeed Hilton and lead author Benjamin Asher. This paper was funded by Ipsen. So Dysport in a powdered form is available in the U.S., and there's a new ready-to-use formulation recently approved in several European countries. They point out in the introduction that the liquid formulation differs from the powder in that it contains no human or animal-derived excipients. The study design was pooling data from two phase three studies that were done in Europe, 251 treated subjects. There's a great results section that is, in summary, very similar to the results that have been seen with Dysport powder in the U.S. For example, at month one, 90% of people had greater than or equal to one grade improvement at maximum frown. At month six, 24 to 27% of people had greater than or equal to one grade improvement at maximum frown. There was about a three-day time to onset, a four-month median time to loss of none or mild severity, and six-month return to baseline severity, high patient satisfaction, no new safety signals. There are basically three main points in the conclusion and discussion. Number one, 
that this pooled data suggests that duration and onset of effect for ABO botulinum toxin type A solution will be in the same range as we already have seen with the currently available ABO powder with no new safety signals. Number two, whether it's clinically relevant, there was no evidence of development of neutralizing antibodies after repeat treatments in these papers. And number three, there was a review of the benefit of already being reconstituted and ready to use. Namely, this reduces preparation time and anticipating that this will give us more precise and consistent dose delivery and consistent effects. This is Megan McLean reviewing the original article, Efficacy of Microneedling with 35% Glycolic Acid Peels versus Microneedling with 15% Trichloroacetic Acid Peels in the Treatment of Atrophic Acne Scars, a Randomized Controlled Trial by Sarabi Dial, Rupinder Kaur, and Priyadarshini Sahu. The authors remind us that acne scarring is common and affects 30-95% to 95% of patients with acne vulgaris according to one study. Treatment modalities are varied and often costly to patients. In this study, the author sought to assess the efficacy and safety of microneedling alternated with either glycolic acid or TCA pills for atrophic acne scars. This trial included 40 patients 18 years or older with atrophic acne scars on the face. Inclusion criteria were grade 2 to grade 4 acne scars as defined by Goodman and Barron's qualitative acne scar grading system, with grade 4 representing more severe acne scars. Please see the study for details and for exclusion criteria. The 40 patients were randomly divided into two groups using a lottery system and classified by the type of scars they had, including isolated ice pick, boxcar, rolling, or mixed if they had all three types. Each patient had 10 bi-weekly treatments which alternated between microneedling and chemical peels. Group 1 patients were treated with 35% glycolic acid, while group 2 patients were treated with 15% TCA. Patients were evaluated in person and with photography at each visit and at the final visit two weeks after the last chemical peel. Please refer to the article for a discussion of statistical methods used. Both groups showed improvement in qualitative acne scar grading starting at week 10 and increasing throughout the remainder of the study. The improvements were statistically significant when compared to baseline, but there was no significant difference when the two groups were compared to each other. Figure 4 demonstrates a 38.38% reduction in quantitative acne scar scores in group 1 and 34.83% reduction in group 2, with no significant difference in reduction between groups found. Results with physician global assessment and patient visual analog scale were similar, with both groups showing significant improvement from baseline scores, but no significant difference between groups. When improvement was assessed based on scar type, it was noted that there was no improvement in the number of ice pick acne scars from baseline to endpoint, while there was significant improvement in both boxcar and rolling acne scar types. Adverse events were limited to post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation, which resolved with sun protection in all patients. This study is limited by several factors. It does not clearly state whether patients or graders were blinded to treatment groups. It's also limited by a short follow-up time of only two weeks, which may underestimate improvement if one assumes collagen deposition and scar remodeling continues to develop over several months. It also may overestimate improvement as post-procedure swelling may still be present two weeks after the last treatment and can temporarily augment the scar appearance. 
In summary, microneedling alternated with 35% glycolic acid teals or 15% TCA peels is equally efficacious in the treatment of atrophic acne scars. Providers utilizing these treatments should counsel patients that multiple treatments are needed and that visible improvement may be delayed until 10 weeks after initiating biweekly treatments. They should also counsel patients with ice pick acne scars that those scars may be less likely to improve. This is Isabella Jones reviewing. The efficacy and safety of a 755 nanometer picosecond laser in the treatment of physiologic lip hyperpigmentation in Thai patients by Ng and Yan. Physiologic lip hyperpigmentation is more common in patients of Asian, African, or Hispanic descent, presenting in the first two decades of life. In this study, a total of 20 patients ages 25 to 60 were treated with five sessions of the 755 nanometer PicoShore laser. The laser was delivered through a 6 millimeter spot size with a fluence of 0.71 joules per centimeter squared for a total of three passes with the full beam and three passes with the diffractive lens array handpiece until the expected endpoint of mild to moderate erythema and mild edema were reached. The authors obtained both objective evaluation using a melanin index of the upper and lower lip and also blind evaluation by two dermatologists of photographs. The article includes several before and after photos. Most patients, 52.6%, presented with moderate clinical improvement at the six-month follow-up. The average melanin index decreased significantly after the fourth treatment and one month after the final session. The authors go on to explain that a short pulse duration and low influence selectively photothermalizes the melanosomes without killing the melanocytes, thereby minimizing the risk of post-optic pigmentation that is common in dark-skinned individuals. This technique, which is often referred to as picotoning, has demonstrated to be safe and effective in the management of also treating melasma. This is the first study on the use of the 755 nanometer picosecond laser for the treatment of physiologic lip hyperpigmentation. This is Isabella Jones reviewing a prospective study of 532 nanometer picosecond laser for the treatment of pigmented lesions of the face and dorsal hands by Friedman and Kahana. The study evaluated the efficacy and safety of the picosecond 532 nanometer laser using a 800 picosecond pulse duration for the treatment of pigmented lesions from chronic photo damage. 25 subjects with skin types 1 to 3 presenting with at least 4 benign pigmented lesions of at least 2 millimeters of the face and dorsal hands were treated. Subjects received 3 treatments at monthly intervals. For facial areas, a 4 to 6 millimeter spot size, 800 picoseconds, and fluence of 0.2 to 0.6 were used. The hands were instead treated with a 5 to 6 millimeter spot size and a fluence of 0.1 to 0.49. Lesion specific melanin index before each treatment and at one and three months post the last session were measured using a mexameter. The results section contains a few nice visual graphics of the results in addition to before and after photos. More than 95% of subjects achieved good or excellent overall pigmentation improvement at one and three months. Lesion-specific pigmentation clearance was excellent in 95% of facial lesions 
and 100% of hand lesions at one month. Three blinded physicians were able to correctly identify the before from the after photograph in 95% of subjects. One patient developed mild PIH, which resolved with conservative treatment. The authors go on to point out the 532 nanometer wavelength is highly absorbed by the melanin, far exceeding the absorption achieved by 755 or 1064 nanometer devices, with a considerably lower depth of penetration that is ideal for targeting epidermal pigment. They also point out that 32% of patients in the study had noted limited efficacy and duration of results with primarily IPL treatments before the study. This clinical study showed the, that the use of the 532 nanometer wavelength at 800 picosecond pulse duration was highly effective for treating pigmented lesions from chronic photo damage with minimal adverse events, although all patients were skin types 1 to 3. This is Ardalan Minokade summarizing the original investigation, a pilot study of the safety and effectiveness of a novel device in subjects with axillary hyperhidrosis from first author Jolie Kaufman and her group. The premise of this manuscript comes from the unmet need of the treatment of axillary hyperhidrosis, which affects 5% of our population. The proprietary mechanism of action involved with this device is targeted alkali thermolysis, or TAT, where thermal energy is produced when an alkali metal comes into contact with water, such as from sweat glands. So when this device is applied to a clean, dry underarm, the adhesive patch delivers this TAT to the sweat ducts and inactivates the sweat glands only where moisture allows it to be triggered. So therefore, this treatment is selective to the most active sweat glands. The authors state this is a follow-up to an unpublished proof-of-concept study in healthy volunteers, and they wanted to assess the benefit or effectiveness of this technology in patients with axillary hyperhidrosis. In this prospective double-blind randomized control study, uh, 16 subjects were enrolled and they were randomized one-to-one -one as to whether they would get a sham patch or the TAT patch. Patches were applied for about three minutes and inclusion criteria was from either having a high gravimetric sweat production amount or a high rating on the validated HDS scale or hyperhidrosis disease severity scale. Scores were taken at baseline and tracked for six weeks post-treatment. Quality of life measures were also monitored. The primary endpoint was a greater than two-point improvement in that scale or a low HDS scale score at week. The primary endpoint was achieved in the, with the analysis of the 16 patients. Admittedly, the authors do indicate that this study was not powered to make statistical comparisons within the treatment and the sham, with the treatment and sham cohorts. This was primarily a descriptive study, except for post hoc analyses with statistically significant improvement in HDS scale values between treatment and sham groups. Of note, improvement in sweating severity was noted in all active treatment subjects. Although generally well tolerated, there were some issues with pain control, notably in one patient in the sham group whose pain took one week to subside, and also focal redness and swelling in one patient who received the active patch 
and was treated with silver sulfadiazine cream that resolved by week five post-treatment. The authors state that this is the first report of the clinical application of alkali metal thermogenesis and wish to highlight that point. The study was also sponsored and funded by the maker of this patch. This is Deirdre Connolly reviewing the communication foreign body reaction to spinal cord stimulator wires, mimicking cutaneous malignancy. First author, Afton Cobb, senior author, Amanda Porter. A 70-year-old woman presented for evaluation of a 1.8 by 1.4 pink-purple, soft, somewhat tender cutaneous nodule arising from a surgical scar on the back. The patient was a poor historian, so prior medical and surgical history could not be obtained. The clinical impression was that of concern for cutaneous malignancy. Shave biopsy showed evidence of acute and chronic inflammation consisting of fibrosis, dystrophic calcification, and abscess formation. Later, an excision was performed and gray mushy tissue was removed, revealing two coiled wires projecting outward from the deep subcutaneous fat. The wires were shifted back into a position parallel to the skin, followed by a standard intermediate layered closure. The subsequent history revealed that the patient had a spinal cord stimulator implanted four years previously for chronic back pain, complicated by infection of the battery pack requiring explantation three weeks later. During explantation, the wires from the stimulator paddle lead were left in the patient because imaging showed a lack of connection to the main stimulator battery pack. The patient had no further issues until she sustained a major fall, which seemed to have displaced the wires to project outward inciting the foreign body reaction. Spinal cord stimulators consist of leads, either percutaneous or paddle leads, which deliver electrical pulses to the spinal cord, and a battery pack generator, which is typically placed in the subcutaneous fat of the buttock, back, or abdomen. Manufacturer protocols for spinal cord stimulator migration or failure recommend removal of the battery pack and wires. However, Spine surgeons or pain management doctors may elect to leave the wires inside because of risk of injury to the spinal cord during removal, and it's important for dermatologists to be aware of possible cutaneous reaction to these foreign bodies. This is Ashley Decker reviewing the communication technique for fast non-traumatic skin graft bolster removal by first author Dr. Ohm and senior author Dr. Bennett. Bolster dressings are commonly used to maintain adherence of a skin graft to its recipient bed, especially in concave surfaces. If the graft has significant drainage from the wound bed, the bolster can become crusted and adherent to the graft, potentially damaging the graft when the bolster is removed. In this communication, the authors describe their technique for removing a bolster dressing in these circumstances. Their bolster dressings are comprised of telpha non-adherent pads as the contact layer. This contact layer is then covered by gauze or some other material to provide bulk cushioning and pressure. The dressing is then tied into place. To remove the bolster, the authors recommend injecting an anesthetic solution directly into the dressing with a 30-gauge needle, causing the dressing to become saturated and facilitating easy removal. Sterile normal saline can also be used in place of the anesthetic. To avoid damage to the graft, injection of the bolster should be from the side. If necessary, the contact layer of the dressing can also be injected with extreme caution taken not to pierce the graft. 
This is Megan McLean reviewing the communication high-frequency electrosurgery for generalized lichen amyloidosis by authors Yanjia Kai, Ki Wang, and Yi Ming Fan. Lichen amyloidosis is the most common subtype of primary cutaneous amyloidosis and usually presents as hyperpigmented papules over the lower limbs with severe itching. There is no well-established treatment protocol, though lasers have been used with some success and use of electrodesiccation has been reported to treat lichen amyloidosis of the auricular concha. The authors present a case of a 43-year-old man with histologically confirmed lichen amyloidosis of 20% of the body's, of his body surface area, including his back, legs, and extensor upper arms. The patient underwent two surgical procedures using high-frequency electrosurgery, or HFES, to eliminate skin lesions. Given the extensive involvement, the first procedure was done with lumbar anesthesia and the second with general anesthesia. A reusable monopolar pencil was used to scrape the papules parallel to the skin surface on cut mode at 30 watts. Residual dermal lesions were further cleared with coagulation mode. The lesions healed with erythema and superficial scarring in four to five weeks with no recurrence of lesions or itching at eight years of follow-up. The authors present HFES as possibly a more accessible and less expensive treatment option for lichen amyloidosis than CO2 laser, though more studies are needed to validate its efficacy. This is Ardalan Minokade summarizing the communication, Ring to the Rescue, Reducing Finger Discomfort with Narrow Barrel Flange Syringes, from Bharat Balu and Michael Ramsey. The premise of this manuscript comes from supply chain issues, in which regular 3cc syringes typically used for infusing local anesthesia have been replaced with syringes that have very narrow barrel flanges. Figure 1 of the manuscript demonstrates what a barrel flange is, which is the part of the syringe where the surgeon typically uses his or her index and middle fingers to stabilize the syringe while anesthesia is injected with the thumb. Repetitive use of syringes with narrow barrel flanges leads to significant finger discomfort with repetitive use for dermatologic surgeons, leading to inflammation of phalangeal joints, tendinitis, and arthritis. The authors suggest a simple solution, which is a nylon flat washer, demonstrated in figure two beautifully. The washer gives a broader platform for the second and third digits to stabilize the syringe, relieving significant pressure to the digits while injecting. The pressure is therefore distributed more broadly among the digits and also prevents them from squeezing into the barrel, improving the ergonomics of this procedure. The authors note that nylon washers are not autoclavable, but can be easily cleaned with disinfectant wipes. The authors also suggest obtaining nylon washers for a half-inch bolt size with an outside diameter of 1 and 1 fourth inches. This is Monica Bowen, and I'll be reviewing delayed adverse events with VYC12, a retrospective analysis of 2,126 treatments. So the authors performed a chart review at a single cosmetic center in Vancouver, Canada between 2018 and 2022 to search for delayed adverse events that they define as greater adverse events that have occurred greater than 30 days after treatment with Juvederm Volite or VYC12. So VYC12 is not a direct volumizing agent, but instead is administered in a grid-like pattern of intradermal microdroplet injections to enhance overall skin hydration and quality. It's not yet available in the United States. The authors found that they performed a total of 2,000 
126 treatments with VYC12, and only one patient had a delayed adverse event. And this patient experienced skin-colored monomorphous dermal papules on the bilateral jawline and cheeks 96 days post-treatment. However, these papules did resolve 49 days later without sequela, and she was treated with that same agent later without adverse events. So the authors calculated that the incidence of adverse events with VYC12 was 0.11% incidence per patient and 0.02% per syringe. This is Isabella Jones reviewing efficacy and safety of superposed fractional carbon dioxide laser in the treatment of Chinese facial aging by Zhang and Zhuo. The authors indicate there are few reports on the use of superposed carbon dioxide fractional lasers in Chinese patients. 21 Chinese female patients received three treatments spaced three months apart using the Acupost CO2 at settings of 25 millijoules and a density of 5%. 71% of patients demonstrated slight and 29% moderate improvement in facial aging signs, which included the assessment of wrinkles, roughness, pore size, dispigmentation, among others. None of these subjects experienced severe adverse events, although the frequency of milder adverse events were not reported in the article. Overall, the study showed that fractional CO2 laser was safe and effective in Chinese female patients. This is Deirdre Hooper reviewing hyaluronic acid filler correction of scars and asymmetries secondary to cleft lip repair by Anna Paula Menzoni and Natalia Bus-Vignet from Brazil. This is a how we did it. A 21-year-old woman with a significant congenital cleft palate, status post seven surgeries, remained aesthetically uncomfortable with her appearance and reported difficulty with lip competence. So if you refer to the paper, there are some beautiful pictures and some very well-written step-by-step instructions on how to replicate the technique. And they did two things. One was they used their 22-gauge cannula to subsize scar tissue, which improved the patient's mobility. And second, they used that same cannula to inject two mLs of Restylane L to improve her aesthetically. They point out that people with altered regional anatomy after surgery mandate a high level of attention to prevent possible complications, and they do acknowledge that this is a temporary improvement. In conclusion, they remind us that the treatment of facial dysmorphia through minimally invasive procedures can have a positive impact on patients' quality of life and that the literature is lacking in publications that would allow for replication of this technique. And again, I would refer you to the paper for photography and step-by-step instructions. Welcome to Beyond the Digest, offering bonus content covering surgical articles in dermatologic literature outside the peer-reviewed journal, Dermatologic Surgery. Reference the episode description for publication details of the content covered. This is Harrison Shawell reviewing the original article, Surgical Excision Margins for Fibrohistiocytic Tumors, including Atypical Fibroxanthoma and Undifferentiated Pleomorphic Sarcoma, a probability model based on a systematic review by first author Atiyah Jibi and senior author Murad Alam.
Mohs micrographic surgery, or wide local excision, is the treatment of choice for fibrohistiocytic tumors with metastatic potential, including atypical fibroxanthoma and cutaneous undifferentiated pleomorphic sarcoma. However, recommended resection margins for traditional excision have not been established for these tumors. Since margin clearance is the strongest predictor of clinical recurrence, recommendations for appropriate surgical margins may help guide the first stage of Mohs and uniform excision margins to achieve the minimum resection margin sufficient to clear most of these tumors. The aim of this study was to determine appropriate surgical wide local excision margins for atypical fibroxanthoma and cutaneous undifferentiated pleomorphic sarcoma. A comprehensive search was conducted to detect studies that addressed excisional surgery of atypical fibroxanthoma and cutaneous undifferentiated pleomorphic sarcoma and contained extractable case-level outcome data on surgical margins. A cumulative probability model was created using the mean clearance margin calculated from the pre-surgical and post-surgical margins. A total of 37 reports involving 116 patients and 118 tumors treated with wide local excision or MOS with specified margins were included in the analysis. The authors identified 101 atypical fibroxanthomas in 99 patients. 70% were treated with MOS and 30% with wide local excision. The overall recurrence rate was 8.3% with MOS and 26.7% with wide local excision. The probability model curve revealed that the margin required to clear 95% of tumors by wide local excision was approximately 2 cm. Very large tumors trended toward requiring a margin closer to 3 cm. For tumors less than 1 cm, a 1 cm margin was predicted to be required. The authors also identified 17 cutaneous undifferentiated pleomorphic sarcomas in 17 patients. 6% were treated with Mohs and 94% were treated with wide local excision. The overall recurrence rate from primary tumors treated with Mohs was 0% and for wide local excision, 54.5%. The low number of cases treated with Mohs may contribute to the lack of reported recurrences. The probability model based on 10 tumors revealed that the margin required to clear 95% of these tumors was 3 centimeters, although the strength of this prediction is limited by the small number of cases. These data suggest that margin control may lead to greater precision and smaller defects than traditional excision. With Mohs depending on the clinically apparent size and shape of the tumor, initial tumor margins of as little as 3 to 5 millimeters may be appropriate. The surgeon may adjust these initial margins for tumors that appear larger or are more histologically aggressive. In conclusion, standard acceptable uniform margins for wide local excision of atypical fibroxanthoma are predicted to be 1 cm for tumors up to 1 cm in size and 2 cm for the majority of atypical fibroxanthomas beyond 2 cm in size. 3 cm margins may be sufficient in most cases of cutaneous undifferentiated pleomorphic sarcoma. Given the broad and deep uniform margins necessary for tumor clearance, the authors recommend margin control techniques such as Mohs for both tumors as they increase clearance rates while preserving normal tissue. My name is Amy Green and I will be re reviewing the research letter entitled Skin Markings to Differentiate Benign from Mal Malignant Lesions, a prospective observational study by first author Rachel Mancy and senior author Dr. Ash Margoob out of Memorial Sloan Kettering. So the premise of this study stems from the previous observation that loss of skin markings may indicate cutaneous malignancy, but clinical observation of this can be challenging and is not typically a criteria that is routinely utilized. The authors were looking to see if dermoscopy could aid in visualization of this. 
Most standard dermatoscopes are equipped with a non-polarized function, which, when in contact with the surface of the skin, allows for visualization of the superficial layers of the epidermis. And it's also equipped with a cross-polarized function, which allows for visualization of the deeper epidermal and superficial dermal structures. The authors discuss an additional lens, the linear polarized lens, uh, which accentuate, accentuates the superficial skin markings. Tumors such as basal cell carcinoma and intradermal nevi can be challenging to differentiate clinically. And lesions such as solar lentigines, lenticomalignant, and dysplastic nevi can also provide uh, challenges clinically to differentiate. So this group took a convenient sample of 100 lesions with a mix of intradermal nevi, basal cell carcinoma, solar lentigo, dysplastic nevi, and melanoma, both melanoma in situ and invasive melanoma, from 67 patients and photographed these lesions with a camera equipped with a dermoscopy lens. There were three contact photographs taken, a non-polarized, a linear polarized, and a cross-polarized photograph, and two non-contact photographs were obtained, a linear polarized and a non-polarized photograph. So there were three reviewers. The first independent reviewer was presented with the non-contact photographs. So this is the linear polarized and the non-polarized photograph and found that skin markings were better visualized with the linear polarized photograph or the linear polarized lens in all cases. A second independent viewer then analyzed those linear non-contact photographs to determine if the skin markings were similar, decreased, or absent compared to the surrounding skin. And they found that all basal cell carcinomas had absent skin markings, which were statistically significant compared to intradermal nevi, where the majority showed similar skin markings to the surrounding skin. And then all invasive and in situ melanoma had either absent or decreased skin markings, which was also statistically significant compared to solar lentigo, where 52% had similar skin markings to the surrounding skin. And so finally, a third reviewer analyzed the contact dermoscopy photographs and found that the non-polarized and the linear polarized photographs were identical in terms of identifying skin markings. To the, and the difference between linear polarized and cross-polarized were the same as the difference between non-polarized and cross-polarized that I had described above. From this paper, my takeaways are twofold. So first, the skin markings are often decreased or absent in cutaneous malignancies, and this can be used as an additional tool to help differentiate clinically similar tumors. And then the second take-home is that linear polarized lens has the added benefit of being able to be used in both a contact and non-contact mode, unlike non-polarized lens. So because of this, it may be beneficial to replace the non-polarized lenses with linear polarized lenses in conventional dermatoscopes. This is Yesel Kim reviewing the research letter, Impact of Delay in Time to Surgical Treatment of Merkel Cell Carcinoma on Overall Survival and Disease-Specific Survival, a Population-Based Analysis, by first author Noor Yacoub and senior author Thomas Knackstead. The aim of the study was to determine whether delays between Merkel cell carcinoma diagnosis and surgical treatment are associated with any difference in overall survival and disease-specific survival. Patients diagnosed with Merkel cell carcinoma between 2010 and 2016 were collected from the SEER database. Stage 1 to 3 primary tumors treated with definitive surgery were included. Patients without time from diagnosis to treatment, unknown survival times after diagnosis, or delays of greater than equal to 12 months between diagnosis and treatment were excluded. 
A total of 2,105 patients with Merkel cell carcinoma were included, with 62% having less than one month delay between diagnosis and treatment. Only 2.42% of cases had a greater than three month delay. The delay between diagnosis and surgical treatment was not significantly associated with worse overall survival. When stage one, two, and three tumors were examined independently, only stage one tumors with a greater than three month delay between diagnosis and treatment were associated with worse overall survival. A significant association between delays in time from diagnosis to surgical treatment of Merkel cell carcinoma and disease-specific survival was not seen. Although the study showed that delays in surgical treatment of Merkel cell carcinoma was not associated with any differences in survival, I wonder that if a difference in survival would be seen depending on the delay in time to treatment since 2017 with the approval of PDL1 inhibitors for Merkel cell carcinomas. This is Yesel Kim reviewing an original investigation. Delays in surgical treatment of melanoma are associated with worsened overall and melanoma specific mortality, a population based analysis by first author David Shung and senior author Thomas Connect said in October's JAD. The aim of the study was to investigate the effect of treatment delays of melanoma after diagnosis on overall mortality and disease-specific mortality in cutaneous melanoma. Although prior studies that had utilized the National Cancer Database demonstrated that earlier treatment of stage 1 cutaneous melanomas are associated with improved overall mortality, they also found that surgical timing was not associated with any changes in survival in higher stage melanomas. A key limitation in the National Cancer Database is a lack of cancer-specific survival data. Therefore, the authors of this study utilized a SEER database to identify patients diagnosed with invasive melanoma who received treatment with local excision, Mohs, or major amputation. They excluded MIS, stage 4 melanomas, mucosal lentiginous melanomas, and patients uh, without enough data on time from diagnosis to treatment, those without known survival times after diagnosis, or those with delays of greater than equal to 12 months between diagnosis and treatment. Time to treatment was defined as the time from biopsy to definitive treatment. Follow-up period ranged from 0 to 83 months. A total of 108,689 patients were included in the study. Tumors were primarily early stage, predominantly superficial spreading or not otherwise specified histological subtype. 76.92% of the tumors were treated promptly with less than one month between diagnosis and definitive surgical treatment. Overall adjusted hazard ratios for all-cause mortality across all stages were significantly increased with even a one to two month delay between diagnosis and treatment, increasing significantly as the delays increased. Delays in treatment for stage one and stage two melanoma were individually associated with worse adjusted overall mortality. Stage two melanoma only showed significantly worsened overall mortality with delays of three to five months. There were no significant associations between treatment delays and overall mortality in stage 3 melanoma. Melanoma-specific mortality was significantly worse with delays between diagnosis and treatment across patients with stage 1, 2, and 3 melanoma. 
In stage 1 melanoma, increasing delays were significantly associated with increased melanoma-specific mortality for 1 to 2 month, 2 to 3 month, 3 to 5 month, and 6 plus months delay. Stage 2 melanoma demonstrated significant association with melanoma-specific mortality only with a 6-plus month delay, and stage 3 melanoma with a 1-3 to month delay. When a multivariable regression model was done, adjusting for other variables influencing mortality, again, across all stages, treatment delays were associated with an increased hazard of melanoma-specific mortality. In patients with stage 1 melanoma, a 3-5 to month Treatment delay were significantly associated with increased melanoma-specific mortality, and in patients with stage 2 melanoma with treatment delays of 6-plus months, had a significant increase in melanoma-specific mortality. Stage 3 melanoma did not show any statistically significant association between treatment delay and melanoma-specific mortality. In conclusion, timely treatment of cutaneous melanoma may be associated with improved all-cause mortality and reduced incidence of disease-specific death. Delays in treatment of stage 1 melanoma greater than a month may be associated with significantly worsened overall mortality, and delays of 3 to 5 months may be associated with worsened melanoma-specific mortality. Prompt treatment of surgically resectable melanomas may be associated with lower incidence of melanoma-specific mortality. This study emphasizes the importance of not only prompt identification, but also proper triaging for timely treatment by both the general dermatologist and the surgeon. My name is Amy Green, and I will be reviewing the research letter entitled Longitudinal Perioperative Pain Assessment in Nail Surgery by first author Dr. Jose Ricardo and senior author Dr. Sherry Lipner out of Cornell. The premise of this study stems upon the fact that nail surgery-associated pain has been inadequately studied. The goal of this paper was to help quantify and characterize pain during nail surgery. This was a prospective observational single institution study where patients over the age of 18 were voluntarily enrolled. The Wong-Baker 0 to 10 scale was used to assess pain, with 0 being no pain and 10 being the worst pain. Age, sex, race, ethnicity, procedure, digit, surgery duration, and analgesics were recorded and represented in Table 1. 65% of the patients were female with an average age of 50, and 80% of the procedures were done on the fingernails. 20 patients completed the study and they recorded pain during anesthesia as well as postoperatively. Anesthesia was obtained with ethyl chloride spray and 1% lidocaine without epinephrine in a wing block fashion. The average pain score during anesthesia was 3.5 and variables associated with higher pain levels during anesthesia included age less than 50 and if the patient had uh, pain prior to surgery. High mean postoperative pain scores occurred 6 to 12 hours after surgery with an average of 5.7 plus or minus 2.4 on the Wong-Baker scale and reached an ADER at 5 days with a score of 1.5. Pre-surgical pain was associated with higher post-operative pain, which can be seen in Figure 1. I think the take-home from this study is that there can be significant post-operative pain in nail surgery, and patients who experience pain prior to surgery have a greater chance of post-operative pain. There are studies evaluating postoperative pain in the Mohs setting, which show a combination of acetaminophen and ibuprofen provide the best, the best analgesics in most settings, but there's not much data specific to nail surgery. This small study suggests the need for additional studies and for the development of pain management guidelines after nail surgery. 
There's also some literature showing that ropivacaine may offer improved pain control during the early postoperative period after nail surgery, but again, further research is needed. It would also be interesting to see if postoperative pain differed based on the digit, the procedure type, and the length of surgery, which I think may provide additional information and further refine our, the postoperative management guidelines. I do think overall this is a good paper that shows the need to look further into these procedures to optimize patient care. This is Elizabeth Cusick reviewing the article Sentinel Lymph Node Biopsy in Patients with Clinical Stage 2B and 2C Cutaneous Melanoma, a National Cohort Study by first author Dr. Straker III and senior author Dr. Kara Kousis. The article begins by providing the background of the recent Food and Drug Administration approval of adjuvant anti-program cell death therapy for pathologic stage 2B and 2C cutaneous melanoma due to the recent Keynote 716 study demonstrating improved recurrence-free survival after complete excision followed by immune checkpoint blockade. In this article, Authors sought to determine the prognostic significance of sentinel lymph node staging on disease-specific survival among patients undergoing wide excision for clinical stage 2B and 2C primary cutaneous melanoma during the pre-immune checkpoint therapy era. Of the 8,562 patients evaluated, 70.3% underwent sentinel lymph node biopsy. Among these, 31.2% were positive. Of note, a five-year disease-specific survival difference of nearly 30% was found between patients with positive sentinel lymph node versus negative sentinel lymph node biopsy. On subgroup analysis, a five-year disease-specific survival remained significantly different across tumor stages based on the lymph node status. Specifically, when patients were subcategorized by either T3B, T4A, or T4B tumor stage, a five-year survival for patients with positive versus negative lymph node disease were as follows, 54.2 versus 64.8% for T3B, 55.5 versus 71.6 for T4A, and 38.6% versus 60.9% for T4B. Therefore, these data demonstrate the prognostic importance of sentinel lymph node biopsy, even in patients with high-risk, clinically localized disease. This was a retrospective observational cohort study in which the authors evaluated patients who underwent excision of clinical stage 2B-2C cutaneous melanoma using the Surveillance Epidemiology and End Results Database funded by the National Cancer Institute, from 2004 to 2011. Patients who did and did not undergo lymph node biopsy were compared with propensity matching, and among those who went underwent sentinel node biopsy, matched patients were further stratified by lymph node status to identify factors associated with positivity. While these findings are consistent with the current AJCC8 8th edition staging criteria, A major advantage of this study is that it evaluates only a pre-immune checkpoint therapy population, so these results represent an accurate portrayal of the prognostic implications 
that sentinel lymph node biopsy has among this high-risk population without being confounded by the use of modern effective systemic melanoma therapies. In summary, for patients with clinical stage 2B and 2C cutaneous melanoma, sentinel lymph node status provides essential prognostic and staging information and can be an important factor for informed collective decision-making regarding the risk-benefit ratio of adjuvant therapy administration based on risk assessment. Thank you for listening to Derm Surgery Digest, the official podcast of the Dermatologic Surgery Journal. To access these featured articles, author videos, and much more, visit journals.lww.com slash dermatologic surgery. To learn more about the American Society for Dermatologic Surgery, visit asds.net.